Hey everyone, it's Nikki Bostwick, and before we get started today, I wanted to tell you about my other favorite morning ritual, which are daily harvest smoothies. I'm kind of obsessed with these things. One, because they're packed full of superfoods, and two, because they're ready-to-blend packs are delivered to your door on ice. So you basically don't have to do anything other than fill it up with your favorite milk or water and hit the liquify button on your blender. You can check out their full list of smoothies and their new activated bowl at daily-harvest.com. Seriously, cooking is no longer required. Thank God. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode eight of Morning Matcha. I'm here today with Daniel Katz, who co-founded the Rainforest Alliance at the age of 24. And he's now the Senior Program Director at the Overbrook Foundation, where he focuses on environmental con- conservation and conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Daniel. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Thanks for having me. So uh, Morning Matcha started out of my interest in becoming a more involved and informed citizen. So I just wanted to chat with you today about different environmental issues and talk about the Rainforest Alliance and what the Overbrook Foundation is up to and um, and yeah pick your brain a little bit okay I'm ready so you were just 24 years old when you started the Rainforest Alliance or co-founded it and I'm just curious what the environmental landscape was like then and um, and yeah what was going on in the world well so I started the Rainforest Alliance along with a few other people in 1986, where we officially incorporated in, in the spring of 1987, about really about 30 years ago today. And at that time, very few people knew anything about the state of tropical forests, about deforestation. And I had learned about rainforests in college. My background was actually is in Chinese linguistics, and I had no intention of uh, making a career in conservation. I had said back then, after learning about rainforest and deforestation, that it, that the people and the plants and the animals of the rainforest had no voice. And if I could ever help to help provide a voice for them, I'd like to do so. And I moved to New York and went to a small workshop. And before I knew it, we were organizing what turned out to be the first and largest international conference on rainforest conservation in 1987 and really had no experience or no business doing that whatsoever. <laughs> the, p- the political landscape was not very pro-environmental. It's not as bad. It wasn't as bad as it is now, but it wasn't great either. You know, we, we uh, people didn't care that much about the environment and people didn't know anything about rainforests. I'll just say one more thing about that. Is that I w- we would stand on the street. We had an ironing board, and we'd, we'd yell, help save the rainforest. <laughs> and uh, we, I, I would find that more people would know about saving the whales than they would about rainforests. Almost no one knew anything about what was happening in rainforests and, why, and how they were being destroyed. And who was destroying the rainforest? <laughs> Is it the same people so right ba- now? Uh, back then, so there are a number of different kinds of drivers of, of deforestation from logging, cattle ranching, um, lo- small and large scale agriculture, 
uh, road building. But uh, Peter Raven, the the scientist from the Missouri Botanical Garden, said it was it, it all came down to population, poverty, ignorance, and greed. And uh, it depends on where you were looking and which countries. But there were people, there were groups that were boycotting Burger King because they were claiming claimed to have been selling uh, cattle that was cutting down rainforest and their burgers. And in other areas, in Indonesia. Uh, there was large-scale deforestation taking place. So there were a lot of reasons for deforestation, but I believed that we all had our hands on the chainsaw. We were all the drivers of deforestation because all of us living in the United States and in, the, in Western countries were using all these products that we took for granted on a daily basis coming from rainforest, and you know, we, we were not paying the externalities. The, the species were being lost. Rainforests were being lost, and we were paying, you know, very little for the products that we were getting from there. Mm -hmm. And how has that changed over the years as as awareness has, you know, people are more aware now, but then consumption continues to rise based on population growth and also just our, that's just our mentality in terms of the way marketing is. And, and even, um, I am a, long i was vegetarian forever and vegan and but soy consumption and um i don't know how coconuts palm oil all these things so i wonder how that's affected it over the years as people start to learn more right so those are good questions there's a lot in there uh so over the past 30 years in some ways we've made tremendous progress because back then we were nobody was involved. You know, the sustainability movement really hadn't been born yet. And now almost every company will issue a sustainability report. Uh, the the general public is so much more aware about what's going on with the environment from air to water to oceans to forests. So so that part of it is really great. Our awareness is so much better. On the other hand, you know, we as a people kind of suck still. Uh, issues like climate change were, were, were going on in, you know, since the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And, and it, it, most organizations either didn't have the bandwidth or the knowledge or the capacity to work on these issues. And now we're really behind the eight ball. Climate is a... Is a along with species loss and other things, but climate is a really big, big, big concern, as we all know, and there is no quick fix. And if we had started to work on these issues earlier, we'd be in a better position now. So there are things that have done, we've done well with and, and things that we just haven't, didn't do enough on. And, you know, I, f I fear for your generation and your generation's children as to what the world is going to look like, unfortunately. And, th and that's why this issue that you raise around consumption is so important because we can't really be telling farmers or uh, people who have no resources to stop doing what they're doing because of the hypocrisy there. It's incumbent upon us to take more responsibility as much as we can to live lighter on the planet. I like to call us planetarians. Now we, we those who are going trying to live lighter on the planet. And as far as climate change deniers go, do you think a lot of them have uh, 
it's because of financial reasons or they just think that, you know, it's ridiculous that we think that humankind can actually have that big of an impact and we're being narcissistic and I've, and then, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm so over climate deniers. (laughs) There are so few of them and there's just that they're, they have such a loud voice. Those climate deniers uh, make the claim that environmentalists are trying to uh, be job killers. It's ridiculous. Uh, around the world, you know, there are so few deniers. But for some reason in the United States, uh, there's this sense that the question of climate change is still debatable. It's no longer debatable. We, we, we've got to move past that. I've moved past that. Unfortunately, we have a, a broken uh, system in Washington, and it's getting in the way of making more rapid progress. And the consequence of that is we are impacting the rest of the world. We need to be leaders, not laggards. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of people suing the government? Uh, has yeah. There are there are several lawsuits led by young people mm-hmm. that are suing. The U.S. government and I think the international uh, the, the the international court in The Hague around around uh, their right to a better future. And are there any chances or any change to occur from that? I haven't been following the cases uh, that closely, but you know, litigation usually takes a long time. But I think the 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 most important point in that is we all have to be out there trying to do what we can do. Uh, I used to think, well, you know, that's silly or that's a waste of time, but I've changed my mind on that. And I really feel like, especially in the era of the current political administration, everybody needs to find more ways to serve. You know, one of the, I think that, uh, I know since your your podcast is about wellness, and I, th- I think that when you, when it gets right down to it, and you look at sort of the meaning of life, Mm-hmm. I think that clearly one of the one of the meanings of life is to serve, and we keep meeting with orga- meeting with organizations, and and the people who work at these organizations are doing their their job serving all day long, and they're looking for more, still more, because everybody you know the people who we work with they want to they want to find new and and more impactful ways to serve, and I feel the same way. We, we can't stop trying, and we have to take these moments as opportunities. You know, we, some people would say we, you go two steps forward and four steps backwards, but we c- con- need to continue to try and, and make those forward steps. Mm-hmm. So tell us a bit about the Overbrook Foundation and um, what you're working on, and also why focusing on Latin America. Okay, so the Overbrook Foundation is a... 50-plus-year-old family foundation, and our grant-making here, it's a, it's a private philanthropic foundation. We, provi- we support uh, progressive organizations that work on uh, human rights in the environment. And within the environment, we focus on sustainability, and in, and in Mesoamerica, in Guatemala, Honduras, southern Mexico, uh, Belize, we're looking at, the, at how community organizations can better protect forests and better uh, keep forests standing and also keep oceans cleaner. 
And we had focused pr more generally in South America, but, but being a fairly small foundation, we're trying to impact our, our, our focus uh, and, uh, or sorry, to, we're trying to look at a smaller area so we can have a, a bit of a, a more impact working with the organizations that are in that area. More generally, the environment program um, for the last number of years has been looking at how environmental organizations can work better together and can work across issues and get out of our environmental silos and look more generally at movement building. We helped to start something called the Building Equity and Alignment for Impact Initiative, the B. And the B is a process for helping uh, large grassroots groups work have be work ha better with uh, environmental justice, community-based activist organizations, and philanthropy. So it was like this three-legged stool. And that, or that process is now run by the grassroots environmental justice organizations on their own. And, and I, I, I think that they've made good headway in building stronger relationships. And they're also working on this greater movement building, which is ever more important in an era of, of Trump. Mm -hmm. And so what are certain um, grants that you've given that you're really passionate about what organizations are doing? I am passionate about all of the organizations <laughs> that we support. Uh, so we, as I mentioned, we support movement building, mm -hmm. and we support uh, movement building is would, would be would be supporting organizations that work across, you know, the environment into human rights. Um, that you know are looking at how do you how do you lift up communities uh, all over so that everybody benefits from a better environment. Um, we support the Climate Justice Alliance, which is working on climate, uh, but it's also looking at the just transition of the economy so that everybody can benefit, not just the upper 1%. Um, in Latin America, uh, groups that I really like, there's a group called Mangabe that, has, that does journalism uh, in Indonesia and now in Latin America and have done an amazing job spreading the word about rainforest conservation. They've got an amazing website. Uh, another media group is Grist. I don't know if you mm -hmm. know Grist, mm -hmm. grist.org. They are reaching a younger audience with irreverent environmental news, and they're changing their focus now to also look at equity-based issues. Mm. And that's really important because uh, for the longest time, the environment, environmental community in the United States has been based on a like a 1970s mentality and the population makeup of the members is also based on that same sort of mentality and we are all impacted by the environment and when uh, uh, dirty uh, manufacturing plant is placed in a poor neighborhood we all suffer so we need to we need to uh, clean help clean up neighborhoods help ensure that you know, all communities all over are uh, have a better chance for a healthy and equitable livelihood. And, you know, the more that we do that, the more we make our society, our greater society, a better place to live in. Mm -hmm. And as far as Monsanto goes, <laughs> how have you seen um, Monsanto affecting Latin America and just the rest of the world? in terms of your the 30 years that you've been 
in doing this work. Right. So I'm. I guess you're speaking about genetically modified organisms and and Monsanto's role in uh, changing the way that food is being grown. Uh, I personally haven't had many interactions with Monsanto. Uh, I the issue of genetically modified organisms, GMOs, is a controversial one, and you know uh, you could ask different people and get different answers. Uh, there are people like Vandana Shiva uh, uh, who would say that they are that GMOs are inherently they're bad. And then you could also find you know uh, soil scientists who might say that GMOs have been around for a long time and they're and and most of them are perfectly fine. I don't think I'm smart enough to really know uh, exactly what the right answer is. What I, I do think that we should be we should practice the precautionary principle and ensure that we do no harm. And I, I also believe that uh, farmers around the world, and there are hundreds of millions of, of small-scale farmers, they should have a choice of the kinds of seeds that they're going to be able to use. And we as consumers should have a right to choose the kinds of products that we're going to buy, and we should be able to, to delineate which ones have uh, GMOs and which ones don't. So if a company is going to use them, they, they have uh, the onus upon them to let us know what's inside their product. In fact, that is one of the changes. You know, at the beginning of this, our conversation, we talked about the changes that have been made. And, and one thing that is clear is that consumers around the world are more concerned about what's inside their product and the supply chain of where things have come from. A actually, in the United States, we lag behind Europe and Japan or parts of Asia about wanting to ensure the knowledge of where our products come from. But the more we know, the more we can ask, and the more we can pressure companies that are manufacturing these goods. And uh, it is a great way for citizens to assert themselves and, and, and show that they care is by asking and by checking product labels and by not buying products that they, w that they don't like because of what's inside and letting companies know. Or, and also by buying products that they do think are good to use. And that's the Rainforest Alliance. The Rainforest Alliance has mm -hmm. been working on certification of uh, a number of different products for nearly 30 years. So work, we work on coffee and cocoa and tea and bananas and wood products. And uh, I would like to think that every time you see our little green frog logo on a product, and now they're on tens of thousands of products, the you as a consumer will be able to say and feel like, hey, I trust this product i trust the company that's selling it a little bit more mm -hmm. and we don't want to assume that that you're going to buy it see the frog and just not think about it we you know we we want you to actually take a, a step back and go this is where my product comes from and and this is this organization that's working to ensure that the farmers were are being are are doing a better job the land is being better taken care of uh, the entire supply chain is is more focused on sustainability. 
are there a lot of how many companies that apply for that actually receive it is it a long process uh, what do you guys um what do you look for every product has a, a standard that goes with it and inside the standard are many 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 criteria depending upon the product that would range from uh, you know uh, uh, what kind of uh, additives can be put on a product to how the people are treated you know their social standards their environmental standards biodiversity standards uh, so and uh, I don't know the exact numbers of of how many that apply and mm -hmm. how many do receive it but I can tell you that uh, since the late 1980s when we first started to now, uh, the, uh, the concept and the process of independent third-party certification, which is what the Rainforest Alliance does, mm -hmm. has grown into a multi-billion dollar industry mm -hmm. with a, quite a few competitors and consumers around the world really looking for that independent mark to show that their products are coming from a well-managed site. Yeah. Um, so as far as just people, consumers doing something and learning more, is there any fact that you know that you think most people don't know and would help them become, I guess, more aware and more involved? And what do you recommend that they, that people do? Right. Well, I don't know if this would be a fact, but having now been involved in the environmental movement for for three decades, even longer, because I, you know, was a passionate college student, you know, so it's, it's been a long time. I've watched ebbs and flows of the environmental movement. I can tell you that passion makes uh, a huge difference. And there, there are those who might say that their individual actions don't make a difference. And I wholeheartedly disagree. I believe in the tipping point mentality that our actions no matter how seemingly small, will have a ripple effect. And collectively, if we all take our own responsibility, we do in fact change the world. And sometimes we have setbacks, and I believe we're in one now, but along the way, we are making progress. And that's what it's going to take. And if we as individuals uh, speak up and 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 show that we care and continue to show that we care and teach our children, talk to our neighbors, um, you know, do the things that we can do as much as we can, then we're going to make a difference. From a fact point of view, you know, we know we did a, a project with New York City a number of years ago looking at what are the most impactful things that New Yorkers can do to impact the planet. And, and this same study has now been done around the country, and it depends on where you live. In New York City, food miles, how many miles it takes for your food to get to a place is going to, is going to have the greatest impact. In places like California, how much you drive is going to have a, a greater impact. But I think it's pretty clear that you know, a meat-based diet uh, collectively has a, a, a big toll on the planet. You know, I, I personally think that you know, building an industry for bottled water and plastic pollution uh, are are these are these are easy problems for us to overcome, and I'd like to think that you know in ten years, maybe less, we'll be able to look back and go, "Wow, I can't believe that we hadn't made that change yet." 
And that's one of the beautiful things that, you know, we have made certain changes over these past 30 years. And I think over the next 10 and 20 years, we're going to make these amazing uh, changes that are going to really help the fate of the planet and the fate of, of, of human beings. Actually, as we've heard, as you probably know, the, the, the planet's probably going to be fine. But the fate of human beings, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to be a little bit more touch and go. Uh, so mm-hmm. so we do have work to do. And the time is always right now to keep doing that work. Do you ever find yourself hopeless? I never find myself hopeless. I do think that as I've gotten older, I recognize that life is a continuum and that I'm going to do as much as I can. I'm going to serve as much as I can. I am not a perfect person. I have my own hypocrisies. We all do. I'm hopefully going to leave the world a little bit better. I'm going to try and pass down the values to my children. I'm going to try and talk to people so that those values and uh, um, the ways that we can help the planet will increase and I know that I'm just, you know, one human being, but I still do believe that as a species and one person at a time, we can do amazing things. Mm -hmm. And that to me is super exciting. And I love the, the, I I love what technology, how technology can make changes. Mm -hmm. And I love how young people are uh, so active and ready to go. And I'm, I, Part of my job now is to uh, ensure that they've got great opportunities to uh, to to do great work, and mm-hmm. that that's super exciting. So I guess you know, I'm I'm still optimistic even after all this time. That's great. <laughs> and how, um, as far as technology goes, how do you see technology helping? Wow, I think technology is helping. I mean, it's hurting in terms mm-hmm. of how much we are on our phones, and I think uh, disconnecting. Mm-hmm. I so and on that way, I talk about or I think about you know, like you have a yoga practice, people have a practice, and you know what what we practice is is what we become good at, and I think a lot of us are really good at being on our phones mm-hmm. because that's our practice, but. From conservation to uh, renewable energy technologies to different kinds of um, app technologies, there are so many amazing ways that we are coming up with uh, new fixes or new solutions or new alternatives uh, to make the world a better place. I think the Internet of Things offers an amazing array of new possibilities that we hadn't thought of before, even just like if you think about light bulbs going from an incandescent bulb that is primarily uh, emitting heat to an LED light bulb that can last for 10 or 20 years and use a tenth or a hundredth or a thousandth of the the energy. I mean, there, there, and if you look at the the technology growth around solar panels, um, you know, we, we are going that direction. And no matter what, the administration tries to do to go back to an obsolete coal uh, energy world, which mm-hmm. is not going to happen. The the bus is, is driving forward, right? And it's a and it's a, an electric bus. And you know we're we're going to continue to make these great changes on behalf of the planet, 
and there's going to be job creation around it. And we're going to, I think we're going to come up with some amazing fixes. And then we're going to have new challenges and we're going to need new fixes and new challenges and new fixes. And that is, that's part of our, that's part of our life project. Mm -hmm. Adaptability. Mm -hmm. And resilience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for joining us today. That was a fun little chat and I feel more hopeful than I usually am for the environment. So thanks for leaving me with that. No problem. Thanks for having me. <laughs>